Creative Brain Candy by Creators for Creators. You're listening to Simply Stogies, a monthly podcast dedicated to the cigar enthusiast. Light up a stogie, sit back and relax while James brings you along on his journey as a new cigar smoker. Simply Stogies will review cigars, discuss topics that cigar aficionados find important, and will probably learn a few things along the way. Now, here's your host of Simply Stogies, James. Welcome to Simply Stogies. I am your host, James. This week, uh, I am honored to have uh, Nick Cirrus, uh, master blender and owner, creator of LH Premium Cigars with us. Nick, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me, James. Uh, I'm excited to talk with Nick. We've got a lot to cover. I, I really want you, the listener, to get to know Nick uh, and his product because I think he puts out a fantastic product. I think it's one of the best cigars that I, I've smoked. All of his line is, is really, really good. Uh, so I want you to get to know Nick. Uh, but before we do, I invite you to go to creativebraincandy.com and check out the family of podcasts that we have there, including Spoiler They Die. If you're into true crime, uh, this is a podcast from two Canadian chicks who think they know about true crime. They're actually pretty funny. Uh, it's dark humor. So spoiler, it's dark humor. Uh, but they are great at what they do. They tell each other stories about all kinds of true crime stuff. Uh, go check it out. Creativebraincandy.com. Spoiler They Die. Tell Kat and Logan James sent you. Uh, and that's all the shilling I'm going to do today, Nick. Oh, I'm done. That's not bad. <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't bad at all, right? <laughs> no. I was expecting, uh, you know, a long spiel. So I was like, all right, let me settle into my chair and I'm ready to go. <laughs> right. No, I try to keep it. I try to keep it. Uh, I try to keep it as minimal as possible um, when I when I shill. And typically I shill for everybody else and not for myself. Um, so let's talk about you. How? because you've been in the industry for a little bit now um, and you've actually been around, like for those of you who don't know, you were on the uh, smooth draws podcast, radio show, radio show, <laughs> right? Excuse me, radio show. Podcast, but it was um, the smooth draws radio show, which was on ESPN radio out of Atlanta, Georgia. And then we uh, spun it out as a podcast after the live show, which was a weekly two hour uh, ongoing show that we did for about four years till its end. Yes. Yeah. Four years. Yeah. So you are no, no stranger uh, to po podcasting, broadcasting uh, and all of that. Plus you've got a background in uh, audio um, technical things. So this is, this is going to be a lot of fun to talk to you about. Uh, but what I want to know is I want to know, like, where does your story start? Because it's not typical because you're, you're a uh, uh, Greek, right? You're Greek American. I am of Greek so, descent. Yes. So, uh, and Yanni from uh, the uh, uh, oh, why am I blanking on the name of his? Uh, starts with a V, right? Vintage. The vintage. Vintage. Why? Why did I blank the on vintage. that? From the vintage, he knows. Yeah. Cigar, yeah. Scar and whiskey bar. Yeah. I think that's the name of it. That's it. Yeah. In in Charlotte, North Carolina, great place. We had Yanni on a couple of episodes ago. Go check that out. Uh, but he was telling me that, uh, you know, you're a fellow Greek and he has like this bond with you. But where where did you start with cigars? Like talk about where your journey started. Well, 
It reminds me of an interesting conversation I had with Sean Williams many years ago. I said to Sean, Sean, you know, I'm Greek and believe it or not, my ancestors, meaning my grandparents and my, even my father and mother were actually tobacco farmers in Greece. Now, it really has no bearing on what I'm doing today because I didn't even realize that until I was, you know, I guess in grammar school, I used to go to Greece every summer and up to the village where I was born. And I remember watching my relatives, the ones that remained back in Greece, you know, doing the typical tobacco type things you do, curing and leaf sorting and, and all this stuff. And um, I remember enjoying it. Of course, it was cigarette tobacco. And then years later, who would have thought I'd be in the cigar business? So I said to Sean, what do you think? Should I use that in my story, in my little spiel? And Sean goes, listen, I'd use it. He goes, I can't, I don't have that history. You know, I came from a, a totally different area, so I can't use it. But if I were you, why not use it? So I just thought it was funny because I never really thought of the ancestral background of not only, what I'm trying to say is maybe tobacco was in my blood. Who would have thought? You know, I, I was always a tech guy, as you alluded to in the beginning of the broadcast. I started out life uh, in the electronics world and uh, home theater and I'm still a tech junkie and I love doing all that stuff. My major in college was communications. And um, I thought I'd be some type of broadcasting journalist or broadcasting anything. And so that's funny how the Smooth Draws show came on years after I was already in the cigar business doing an interview there. And I was invited to do some segments and segments learned, uh, turned into being a co-host on that show. And uh, so I do have that aspect that I enjoy, but my true passion, and it seems to, if you follow your true passion, then your life seems to be okay, I guess. At least for me, it's been all right. Lots of ups and downs, but um, I like tobacco. I like cigars, and I've had somewhat of an obsession with it since I was a little kid. And uh, here I am in the industry and in the business in my later years of life. So how did that obsession start for you? Like, was it love at first, first puff? Do you remember your first cigar? I, well, I tell a funny story where, you know, when I was again in grammar school, I never smoked a cigarette. I'll have to say I never actually smoked a cigarette, but I remember having this obsession with Sherlock's Sherlock Holmes and detectives and things like that. And I remember seeing, you know, um, on the screen, this guy smoking a pipe and I thought, Oh, that looks really cool. Now, the average nine-year-old doesn't think that, but I wanted to go smoke a pipe. So I went to Bradley's. That was a chain that was around. It was a national chain, I believe. And with like a dollar and a quarter in my pocket, I was able to buy a corn cob pipe and some tobacco at nine years of age. The guy sold it to me. I went outside in the parking <laughs> lot, lit it up and proceeded to get very sick and put the tobacco <laughs> part of my life on hold for a while. But again, I was drawn to the tobacco part of it and the smoking uh, aspect of it. In college, I did something that people thought was quite geeky and used to bust my chops all the time, which was trying to smoke a pipe, you know, when I was on campus uh, in my dorm room. I'm not talking about walking around campus with a pipe, but, you know, I thought it was sure. cool and uh, I enjoyed the flavors, but um the cigar part of my tobacco life didn't happen till years later, because even though people had offered me cigars when I was in college and in various places, they were never quite good. And I never really understood or appreciated what people saw in drawing these cylindrical pieces of tobacco that 
to me, didn't really offer you anything. So, it, well, like I said, it wasn't until a couple of years, a couple of years later, somebody offers me, I believe it was a Macanudo. I remember the year very well. It was 1992. And I remember smoking this cigar and I had my first aha moment like, oh, I think I understand this. I've, I've, I think I taste something. I think I'm getting something out of this. So being the obsessive personality that I am, I proceeded to try to find out everything there was about cigars. So I went to my local bookstore. And this is why I remember the year so well. After buying every book I could about cigars on my way out the door, I noticed glancing over my left shoulder that there was a newsstand and a bunch of magazines and one that stuck out for whatever reason for the first time was the word cigars in big, bold letters. And I'm like, wait a minute, there's actually magazines devoted to cigars. So I stopped, I picked up the magazine, happened to be the inaugural issue of Cigar Aficionado magazine. Of course, I bought that. And then like a kid that goes home with <laughs> his first Playboy magazine, I went home <laughs> with this magazine based on cigars and literally read it from cover to cover. And I was hooked ever since. I loved everything there was about it. I wanted to learn everything there was. And so you could say in the following 10 years or so, I became a very, very big cigar aficionado, to use the word. So that's how I started. So from there, from having this obsession, this passion, uh, you know, lit for you, so to speak, mm -hmm. how, how did you go from being an audio technical guy? And uh, somebody told me you were a, a, a police officer. How did you go from all? How did you go from all of that to it being, becoming a master blender? And and like to, to tack onto that, do you even like the term master blender? No, I cringe every time somebody says that when it refers to me. <laughs> um, I guess the term is correct in the sense that I happen to be the master blender of my own brand. But I take a lot of reverence with the word master. Anybody that's a master is somebody that has done it, in my opinion, for their whole life. And uh, literally has mastered, the word master means to understand every part of it and to, to learn everything there is to know. Well, it's a constant learning process, but I'm by far a master. Yes, I've been blending cigars for now going on eight, nine years. I enjoy it. I'm very good with certain tobaccos that I've gotten some experience with. But as far as being a master, listen, look, if I'm still doing this, which I'm pretty sure I will be, 20 years from now, maybe then you can call me a master blender. Um, I really enjoy it. I'll say that. It's something that I like. Uh, I think I'm pretty good at it. And I'm now just transitioning from making cigars that are <clears throat> for individual people. That's how I got into the business. All right, let me take a step back. So I'm in the electronics business. And um, one of my clients happened to be a Saudi oil prince who I met in Florida. And without getting into the full story of it, because that'll take a while, and, and, I've, and I've said it on other episodes, but sure. in, a yeah. in a nutshell, we bonded over a cigar, and we became friends over a cigar, and uh, he wanted me literally to be his paid best friend, I guess, whatever you want to call it, um, which I didn't do, but through business, I made a lot of trips over to Saudi Arabia, and I used to travel to certain areas that he would visit, and we would mainly smoke cigars. Yes, he gave me a lot of work in the meantime, and um, which gave me income, 
Um, but it was really our mutual love of tobacco and cigars that kept us bonded as friends. Um, coming to 2008, 2009, when the big crash happened here in the United States, uh, retail business was bad, everything went and for 20 years of being in the electronics business, it was time to put a close to that chapter of my life. So, and I did enjoy it and I loved electronics. And like I said, I still do, but I always had my hobby, my, my passion uh, was always tobacco. So in my mind, if there was ever a way that I could get into the tobacco business in some way, that would have been an ideal dream. So the Saudi prince asked me if I would be interested in helping um, put together a cigar lounge in the desert of Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. A good friend of mine who is the same prince's assistant, uh, well, assistant's probably not the right word. He basically handled all this, all his stuff, and he, he was with him forever, and he was his right-hand man, and also a mutual cigar smoker that... Um, was also tasked with doing, it was pretty much his brainchild between him and the prince and they wanted to put a cigar lounge. And as I say it, it's, he wanted to get all these freeloader, freeloaders out of his house. So he <laughs> wanted a place for them to kind of get together and having, there's being nothing like that in Saudi Arabia. Um, I said, okay, I thought it'd be a nice project to get involved with. So, um, we went about opening up a cigar lounge, a private cigar lounge in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. These Cuban cigars has always been a difficult task because depending on who the distributor in your area is, they pretty much give you whatever they want and you're lucky if you get anything and you're lucky if they give you, you know, something every now and then that you it's worthwhile because they keep most of it for themselves and they pretty much sell direct to the US. Most of these distributors um, sell to the US and the rest go to where they're supposed to, hmm. where they should be going, but they're not. But anyway, so I learned early on that if I wanted to make my private clientele happy, I had to go find a way to get these coveted cigars since we were never getting the right ones and the quantity of the ones we wanted. So um, traveled there with my friend Omar and business partner. Uh, to Cuba for the first time uh, about 12 and a half years ago. And um, I fell in love with the country. I fell in, because that was the birthplace of tobacco. And to go to the Mecca of where it all started, you know, the Vuelta Bajo region of Pinal de Rio, Cuba, it was just even more magical for me. And my passion turned more into an obsession where I wanted to learn everything there was. And I met some very, very key people there that um, were very instrumental in mentoring me in the early days. And then soon after, I started formally educating myself, going through the Master Blender schools uh, in Cuba and uh, studying under the tutelage of these very master ligadores in Cuba and, and learning a thing or two. What did I use it for initially? Very simple. These um, clientele that we had in Saudi Arabia, they were willing to pay whatever it really, whatever it really needed to be paid in order to get what they wanted. So what I'm trying to say is they wanted custom blends. And that was the big thing. They would say, you know, I love this Cohiba Spondido over here, but if I could get this and it just had a little bit more of this and a little bit more of strength and this and that, 
And I'm like, well, I can't go to Habanos and tell them, hey, can you reblend this for my client? <laughs> so right. um, I learned very early on that there were these master blenders that worked in these Casa de Habanoses in Havana, Cuba initially. And I befriended many of them. And um, they were able to, with the tobaccos that they were able to procure, um, make custom blends that were kind of along the lines of what these clientele we're looking for that then progressed into me actually going to uh, the Volta Bajo region and, and the farms of Pinar de Rio and using the very, very best material, being able to custom blend with these master ligadores, these cigars that were phenomenal and tailor made to the individual tastes of the clientele that started in me kind of forming my own flavor profile for my blends that eventually became the private blend of the lounges. Oh, the lounges were called La Vida Havana. And um, if somebody knows my brand, it's called LH Cigars, but really the LH means La Vida Havana. So that's where LH Cigars came from, the private lounges of Saudi Arabia of LH Cigars. So I made a very simple band that was very classically Cuban. It had the logo the same logo that I created back then I use today, and it just said LH on the bands. So the private blends that we had were originally 100% Cuban, and that transitioned into making hybrids, and then eventually led to me meeting my um, future family, so to speak, in Costa Rica with the factory that I became a part of and uh, started making non-Cuban cigars for the Middle East. And the one thing I'll say by from the private clientele and for the, uh, the uh, many uh, nice people in that region, they are very generous. So wherever they were traveling, they would be very quick to hand one of um, these private blended cigars with the band that said LH on it. Before you know it, people were calling me and saying, hey, what is this LH thing I keep seeing? How do I get my hands on one of these? So I'm like, oh, so from a private blend for the lounges started to become a international uh, selling cigar starting and having its origins in the Middle East. Then it grew from there to 13, now 14 different countries. And um, I decided along the way that it would be great if I could sell these cigars in the United States as well. But having been around the industry from the early 90s, I knew that it was a very congested a uh, very competitive playing field. And, you know, I, I felt, you know, that the last thing the United States needs is another brand. But <laughs> um, I thought with the, the blends that I had made, which were predominantly um, designed for overseas consumers, and I'll explain that in a second. The one thing that kept me driven, and I knew that the cigar would be a success, is my factory employs some of the best rollers in the world. And without sounding too braggadocious, the one thing I can very confidently say is that I would put my factory up to any factory that's out there in terms of construction and quality. And the reason for that is because it is based in Costa Rica. Costa Rica, um, we end up paying about four or five times the average labor rate of an equivalent torcedoro from Honduras or Nicaragua or Dominican. So sure. if you could cross over the border and come over and make five times what you normally make, you would do that. 
Most people. Oh, for sure. So that being said, we had people and still do uh, beating down our doors every day looking for a job. Because of that factor, we can be very selective and take the cream of the the, the top of the the bunch, the best of the best. And our average age of experience in rollers is 20 plus years. And they are ultimately, you know, the best rollers out there. So, you know, the bad part is, yeah, everything costs more in Costa Rica, the import taxing of tobacco to bring in, the exporting of the cigars, the labor that we pay, all the other factors tend to make the cigars cost more than they would if we had a factory in Nicaragua or Dominican or what have you. But the good part of that is that we get the best of the best in that, uh, in that field. And so that's why our cigars are made so well. So having that factor... I decided, let me get into the U.S. market. And that's what I did. So when you pivot, when you made this pivot from private blend for Saudi princes and for, you know, these these lounges in uh, the Middle East, you made this pivot from from that to, you know, consumers, uh, regular consumers. Like what what was the what was the vision for your brand, what were you trying to achieve with it? Because like you just said, you said, you know, in the U.S., it's a saturated market. Like, do I really want to get into it? Well, in the in the international market, for those outside of the U.S., like going up against Cuban cigars is almost unheard of. Like, you're just not, you're not going to succeed. And for the longest time, and I think still to some some degree, well, uh, the, the international market looks at Cubans as the best. Yeah, my focus was very, very simple and very driven and still is. And I was on point. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I love Cuban cigars. My palate is very Cuban-based. I enjoy the flavor profiles that Cuban cigars give. So my idea always was for LH to be a brand that is now considered the bridge cigar. The bridge from old school, which is the Cuban cigars, to the new world, which is every cigar that's made outside of Cuba. So I'll have to say that years ago, any cigar that wasn't Cuban, you went to any country and you gave them a non-Cuban cigar and they would look at it and they would, if they didn't immediately call it fake, now that was their term, not exactly a nice word, but that's the way they viewed anything that wasn't a Cuban cigar was considered a fake cigar. From there, the progression became, okay, it's Dominican, because they assumed that every cigar that didn't come from Cuba came from Domin- from the Dominican. So it's, oh, it's one of those Dominican cigars. Again, in their mind, a negative term, which of course shouldn't be, because the Dominican right. Republic produces some of the best tobacco out there as well. And then from Dominican, people started evolving And it really started only in the last five years. And I have to say part of that is because uh, President Obama scared the hell out of the rest of the the world because everybody assumed (laughs) that he was going to open up the Cuban market to the U.S. and they would never be able to get their their sought out, you know, coveted Cuban cigars. So people were more apt to try and other cigars that weren't Cuban. So then that term became more positive in new world cigars. So now you'll see everywhere in the, in the, in the world outside of the U S they'll call it new world tobacco or new world cigars. So my idea was to be the bridge between Cuban cigars and new world. Now you can never duplicate the same blends because you know, the tobacco, a lot of people, one of my biggest pet peeve uh, that I see 
not so much today, but a lot of people will say, oh, this has Cuban seed tobacco. And as we all know, the seed, as important as it is for whatever rival right. it comes from, <laughs> it makes no, you take that seed it, and you, wherever you plant it based on the environment and more importantly, the soil is what your right. flavor is going to be. So just because you have Cuban seeds does not mean you have a Cuban cigar or a Cuban tasting cigar, far from it. So that's a pet peeve when I'll see these bands and they'll say Cuban seed. And I go, <laughs> oh God. But anyway, the non-Cuban cigars that kind of, in my case, the, the, the bridge cigar, I wanted to capture the essence of what a Cuban cigar was about. The, uh, the, the, the normal flavors you get, the earthy tones and, 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 you know, the, the horse manure, you know, that you just, you know, when you're out on these fields, that's what you smell. And, uh, you know, not that that's usually a good thing, but when it comes to tobacco, I like it, but anyway, I do too. Um, so using that concept and with my palate and using some unique tobaccos and more importantly, not just the tobaccos, but in the way that they are processed, or I like to say cooked, a lot of people will say, Hey, Nick, you know, you tell people freely, what's in your tobacco, what's in your cigars, what tobaccos you use, and even the leaves and everything. And I'm like, yeah. They're like, aren't you afraid somebody's going to steal your recipe? And I'm like, (laughs) no, that is such a, I could tell you, I could even give you the same leaves where where I purchase and where we grow some of the leaves that we have, but it's all in the cooking. People don't realize that the cigars are very important, but how you cook them or process them is what gives it its individuality and its unique flavors and tastes. Uh, and you can never reproduce the same. That's why if people leave a particular factory and try to go to another factory and produce the same exact cigar, I believe it can never be done unless the person goes with it and is using the same process. Or in this case, we'll affectionately call them the cook because it comes down to how it is cooked. Like you got chicken. Chicken is prepared how many different ways and can taste so many different uh, ways. You have fried chicken and, uh, you know, grilled chicken. Well, it's the same yeah. thing with tobacco. It's how you prepare the tobacco, how you cook it. And cooking is not actually an incorrect term because even in the fermentation process, it's how high do you let the temperature go for how long? And, and, and everybody has their idea and formula of what needs to be done to produce the end effect that they're looking for. So that cooking process is what makes a cigar unique on top of having, uh, you got to have the right ingredients, like in any recipe, you know, if you don't have the right ingredients to begin, you could be the best cook in the world, but the end of the, at the end of the day, you need to have the right stuff going in to make that uh, ultimate uh, dish for yourself. So yes, the leaves are very important. Um, and then again, the, the cooking process. So, and that makes your product at the end of the day. I think so, I'm talking too much, James. Maybe you should. No, you're not. You're absolutely not. You, uh, you, you're you doing a great job. Like So <laughs> I, I've, I think I've said this before. Like we, When I have a guest on, there are guests where I'll ask them a question and then it's like pulling teeth to get more out. And I hate that. I would rather ask the question and then let the guests go where they want. I think that makes for a better episode. I think that makes for better listening. And I think it lets the listener get to know the guest in a way that I, there's, I couldn't do on my own. So I, I think you're, you're, you're answering the questions fantastically, but let me, you, me in you, check though, James, steer me the right way. I will. <laughs> you said earlier that yeah. you wanted your vision was uh, for LH cigars to be a bridge from Cuban uh, cigars to non-Cuban cigars and kind of that like bridge that gap. Right. 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 And there's not a lot of people 
I don't think in the industry that could even attempt to pull that off. But you've spent so much time in Cuba. And like you said, learning how to blend in Cuba and learning at the feet of some of these these true master blenders. Do you think that you're in a unique position uh, based on your experience and and the way that you're, you know, the trajectory of your career has gone that you can that you can do that and pull it off at the level that you've done? Well, I think there's a lot of different factors. One, ultimately, you have to have the palate for it. And that's the, the biggest thing you need to, in order to, to blend a cigar is being able to ascertain and to be able to differentiate the many different flavors that can come out of a cigar. But in my case, when I first started, I was not that experienced. But what I did is everything, for me, this whole cigar has journey has been so interesting because I let it kind of take me where it takes me. A lot of the tobaccos that I use all have a story. Like I happen to use a lot of Peruvian filler and people go, why Peruvian? Initially, I didn't know why I met a guy in Cuba who happened to be Italian at one of the Habanos (laughs) um, gala events. And we started talking and he was in real estate. And before we knew it, I find out that he actually ended up taking over this farm and he invited me down there and I, I, and I went and I tasted the tobacco. And now a lot of my signature flavors come from Peruvian uh, fillers that I use in my blends that I find that just seem to make a better, I just like the better synergistic effect that I get when I blend my Peruvian along with my minimum three to five year aged Nicaraguan tobaccos that we buy. And then all that is wrapped with all the, all the cigars that I've, released and uh to this day all come from the farm that we lease in ecuador where we have uh not only the the but i'd say the normal uh seeds that we we you know the habano 2000 the criollo the corojo um, all these different wrappers that are ecuadorian in country but the seed varietals come from everywhere you know connecticut and what have you and um and that's where my cigars are created but to get back to is it Am I in a unique position? Well, I was at the right place at the right time. And I, and I had a vision of what I wanted to do, which is basically emulate Cuban uh, cigars using non-Cuban tobaccos. Um, and I ran it across, especially in the beginning, uh, the master ligadors that had been employed by Habanos for 50 years. Some of these guys literally had worked there 50 years. And every blend that I came across and I, and I went to what I thought was good, I would take it over and have these guys try it. And they would guide me like, well, and again, using their, which is their ultimate palette, it was all Cuban. And they actually blended some of the most popular and famous blends of cigars today. You know, uh, the one guy in particular that is um, still alive, he's in his 80s. And he's, um, I mean, he, his whole life was about tobacco since he was like 12 years old. He was the uh, master ligador for Habanos for many years. He blended all the Trinidads. He's the original blender of the Bejique blend, not the, uh, the, unaf- the, the original one, but the, the commercial available one. And then he, he did the Maduro 5 Cohiba. And, um, you know, he was man of the year for Habanos, uh, you know, uh, about five years ago. I think it was 2011. Actually, the year that the Bejique was released, 2011, is when I met this man. And uh, 
over just going to his house to have a coffee, we formed a bond and a friendship. And I've learned so many things from this, from this gentleman, and I continue mm. to learn. So using his palate and many other people's palate that I had confidence in and I valued, I started to make cigars in Cuba. In fact, one of the guys that I used to run my blends by was uh, Hamlet. If uh, anybody's familiar with the Hamlet cigar by Rocky Patel, Hamlet mm-hmm. Paredes was a uh, roller in Cuba and he worked at the Partiga shop and he was a good friend of mine and I would end up bringing him my cigars. And I remember initially, I, we, we joke about this because when he'd say, oh, Nick, this is good, but it's too strong. This is way too strong. And the irony is the first cigar that he made was so strong. It was like, <laughs> are you kidding me? When I saw him, I said, you got to be kidding me. You know, you, you know, you thought my cigars were strong. But anyway, um, the average person thinks that a Cuban cigar is strong, but it's actually far from it. The average Cuban no. cigar is milder, if anything else. So anyway, yeah, I had a lot of help in the beginning, but um, I had a vision and I was almost like an order taker. Like as long as I understood the palate of the customer that I was dealing with, I could create a blend that they wanted. And every time I hit it right, it was just such an accomplishment. And I got quite good at it. And I started making blends for other brands. And then of course, ultimately, you know, the LH brand internationally was doing quite well in the international market because these people that normally only smoke Cuban cigars were starting to smoke non-Cuban cigars. And believe it or not, I still don't, I have a theory, but for whatever reason, in a lot of countries, if you tell them it's a Costa Rican cigar, all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's, it's like, you know, has this better uh, impression or vision of what uh, Costa Rican, I couldn't understand it initially, but I could only, I think maybe it has to do with in, um, in France, for instance, the top non-Cuban selling brands are from Costa Rica and uh, mm-hmm. Switzerland and Belgium. And anyway, Costa Rica seems to have a decent reputation for producing um, non-Cuban blends um, that are very good. There's a brand, um, well, maybe I shouldn't say the name, but eh, what the heck. It's, <laughs> it's called El Septimo. And El Septimo is like, in France, it's a very, very well-respected and known um, cigar and um, has a good reputation. And they have a factory in Costa Rica. They're actually trying to enter the U.S. market this year. And uh, I wish them a lot of success. I think they're going to be at the PCA their cigar retails for about $65 a stick. So wow. they're, they're going to have a little bit of a, uh, and look, I get it. Yeah, um, It's it's expensive. And in fact, there's uh, another brand of cigars that is made actually out of my factory that is about half the price of that, but still quite pricey. And people always go, what the heck, you know? And, and I get it. It's, it's very expensive, but um, you know, people will put whatever they think a cigar is worth. I don't do it that way. Um, I have to say that because I did say earlier on in this episode that Costa Rica, the cost, the costs are much higher. And that mm-hmm. is true. Um, I don't know. I, I can't justify a $65 cigar, but that's not me. Um, I think I've gone the other extreme where I basically have priced my cigars under what I believe they should be. Well, let's put it this way. If I were pricing them at the normal profit levels that I should have, if I was based in Nicaragua 
or Honduras, my Toro should be about 13 to $14 before taxes. Right. And that's really where they should be. But I've been kind of a stickler where I've kept it frozen in time since I launched where my Toro is just at $10. Um, and I'm just trying to get the word out there. So the LH brand uh, entered the U.S. market first with a, a little, you know, uh, testing the waters back in 2014, really coming on in 2015 with three different brand, uh, blends. The uh, Claro blend, which um, is a Connecticut shade Ecuadorian wrapper with um, a lot of my signature tobaccos. And then I have a Colorado blend, which is my Habano uh, 2000 seeded Ecuadorian. Um, and that's medium bodied, uh, well balanced, really nice cigar. And then I have, I call the Maduro line, and not because Maduro as in the color, people think Maduro means dark or, and it doesn't, Maduro means mature. And the Maduro can be, you know, any, any shade of darker brown to, to black. Black is really more of an oscuro, but anyway, my Maduro is, I call it Maduro because of more full bodied. Um, and that again is a misnomer because you can have Maduros that are not full bodied whatsoever, but I just call the line Maduro. Um, so that's my three lines, Claro, Colorado, and Maduro in the LH. Yep. And I have seven different Vitolas. I, I cover them pretty much all the standard sizes with a couple of added, you know, I have the, uh, you know, the Corona and the Robusto and the Toro and uh, my Gordo, which is a six by 60. I make a killer Lancero. Um, I have a Churchill and uh, I even have. What's, what's your favorite Vitola? Like if, yeah, if you're just going to make a cigar for you, what Vitola would you make it? Well, you know, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I tend to smoke um, prior to being in the industry or just as a, as a, as a connoisseur, I tended to go to Churchill because Churchill was really the biggest cigars back in the day in the nineties. Uh, and yeah. then, you know, right now I'd say, you know, Toros. So Toros probably my favorite size, you know, between a 50 and a 54, eh, six inch. Now, when I'm blending, you know, I'm, I'm blending Coronas and Lanceros because when you blend a line of cigars, uh, if you're not blending to a particular size, you pretty much make a very um, thinner gauge cigar that has the core elements of the blend. And then as you blend to the different sizes, you add the appropriate fillers to keep the blend similar or not, depending on how you want to do it. But my favorite size uh, again, I go through different stages, you know, um, and the idea of the different sizes is you're supposed to smoke a cigar according to the amount of time that you have for one thing, like in the morning, if you only have 35, 45 minutes, maybe you should have a Corona right. with your espresso. Um, if you know, you're going to have a two hour, you know, relaxing afternoon there, you can go with a nice Toro or, or something, but everybody does tend to have their favorite size. I've been going on a mission to try to get people to smoke thinner cigars again, because for some reason in the United States, predominantly people think that bigger, fatter cigars means better value. And, yeah, right. and, you know, it really almost costs the same, you know, with a little bit difference in the, um, the fillers, but, you know, you shouldn't buy it based on that. You should buy it based on the, the, um, 
what, what, what you like. It's all about personal yeah. tastes, you know, and, but it, to get people to understand that a thinner cigar that has less fillers are going to have more of the key components of the, of that blend. And um, I'm just trying to acclimate people to getting back to where it once was and just bigger, fatter cigars did not mean they're better or right. better it, value. And there, like there's a whole line of conversation that we could have about uh, American palates and, and the differences between what Americans like and what the international market likes. Uh, we could talk about that on another episode sure. because that can go in a whole lot of different directions. But I want to get back to LH cigars because LH cigars, your core brands, like you said, is or your core blends are the the Claro, the Colorado, and the Maduro. That's the core. Right. And your Claro, uh, I I have to be honest, is probably, if not the best light to medium cigar i've ever had in fact in in the in the um and i'm not just sucking up because if it was terrible i'd be like that's ah, all right uh it i gave it a 9.57 on our review at simplystogies.com oh, it's one of the highest rated cigars that, that i have personally done and i absolutely love this and i asked the question like why is this not in everyone's humidor like i like cuban cigars as much as the next guy right at least as much as i can get my hands on them they're 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 really good when when the construction's there and this is very cubanesque and it has just absolutely wild flavor in it like it is so good like it can be medium and mild and still deliver tons of flavor full flavor so my question to you, Nick, and I've talked you and I, uh, we have a mutual friend, uh, Randy Carmichael, who was on an episode of Cigars and Coffee with me in, in, in uh, while we were in Charlotte for the Queen City Cigar Fest. He and I've talked about this. And, you know, my question to you, Nick, is why are you not bigger? Why is LH Cigar not in every humidor in across the nation? Because it's some of the best cigars I've ever smoked. I can only attribute that uh, to one thing, uh, my drive. Uh, not that I'm not driven, but I wanted this to be more of a journey than a destination. You know, I've always been a very driven entrepreneur in every business I had. I wanted to be successful. I wanted to be top of my game. And you know what? You lose track of the end picture and you don't enjoy the journey. You know, for me, it's all about the continuous journey towards achieving, you know, the achievement of your worthwhile goals. And I keep that in the back of my mind. And, and this may sound corny, but every day I go about knowing that one day I will be where I need to be, but I'm not so fixated on when that's going to happen. Um, I know it's going to happen at some point and, and I don't, I don't push it. I could push it more. Don't get me wrong. I, I want it to, to be successful and I, and I, and I want to be, uh, in this industry and, and, and get some of the accolades that I think the cigars deserve. But I just don't do things in the conventional way. Um, I know what to do if I needed to do. I mean, I, I don't send my cigars in for reviews um, to people. I don't go on a circuit. I don't have a PR guy. I don't advertise. Um, I've always been one of mouth to mouth. Uh, if I want to, I don't do a lot of podcasts. I did the radio show with Smooth Draws, but another thing, that if people, you, if you ask around, I hardly mention my own brand on my own show. 
I mean, a lot of people didn't right. even realize that I was a manufacturer because I thought that was the wrong place to do that. Here I was interviewing other manufacturers or or other people, and I just didn't want to be this shameless guy that kept plugging LH. Um, I want people to find it and discover it organically. And it's my job to be able to differentiate as I meet a new cigar shop uh, owner and get them to bring it in and, and, and basically articulate of why my cigar is worthy to be in their humidor. And it really comes down to smoking it. Um, another thing I used to do is I used to send out a lot of samples. I don't do that anymore either. People will call me from all over the country and say, hey, I've heard about your cigar. Can I get a sample? And I'll go, no, no, I don't. And people go, what? How can we get to know your cigar if you're not going to send us a sample? I go, you know, I've been doing everything in the beginning the way I thought things should be done, like the way everybody else did things. And I just don't think it works. What I do now is somebody will say, hey, you know, send me a sample and I'll go, you know what I'll do? I'll let you buy one box or however many boxes you want of my line. Yeah, but I got to know if it's good. Well, here's what I'll do. You buy a box, you smoke however many you think you need to smoke out of that box to determine if that cigar has merit to be in your humidor. If you find it does not, repackage the, bo the box and ship it back to me at your expense, and I will refund you 100% of your money. How's that for a deal? But what I find is people that generally ask for samples, either they don't remember smoking it or their manager will grab it first. Mm -hmm. And it's so yeah. frustrating. I'll call back a few days later and say, hey, oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it was all right. I'm like, what? You don't know. You know, I mean, occasionally, less than 10%, you'd have a guy go, oh, yes, I smoked it, you know, before this, I had it during this time and I found this. But that's generally, they, they don't take it seriously. It comes in a package. Somebody grabs it at the store. Uh, that's another thing that I don't like about the PCA and all these trade shows. You know, it's so many different people and so many different brands. It's hard to really give the appropriate time. I like to call it trick-or-treating for most people that go there. <laughs> yeah. They go there with their bag. Now, most of the people, hopefully are real retailers, but you know, there's so many people that shouldn't even be there to begin there with their, their bag of tricks. And they're just going around collecting as many cigars as they can. And sometimes there are legitimate retailers that do the same thing. And then you'll find all those cigars in a big bowl, you know, uh, five cigars for, for 10, you know, whatever they're, they're just selling them. Uh, it, it's so frustrating to see because, you know, I, as, as a past retailer uh, with the lounges and in retail in general, you know, this is, should be taken seriously and you should, try to find, and, and I'm not saying this of all retailers, there are a lot of obviously very good retailers out there that do take their job seriously, but a lot of people are just, you know, fishing for, for samples. Uh, and I wish I didn't go on this whole, ta uh, this tangent uh, about that, because, but because it's just such, it's so frustrating for me. Well, but, but I, go ahead. I'm glad you brought it up though, Nick. I, I really am. Cause the trade show just ended, uh, by the time this, this, uh, episode releases, um, and you didn't go this year. I did not. I did not. Uh, is that is that part of the reason? Was there more of no, why you didn't go? No, that wasn't really the reason, but it didn't. Let's put it this way. I didn't need much of a reason not to go. And, and, <laughs> okay. and this year, you know, the fact that the major four weren't there and normally you get 250 to 300 uh, different exhibitors at a show. This year you have less than 80. Um, and I did a kind of an informal polling of my retailers and retailers in general. And I would say one out of every 10 um, 
were planning on going. And the people that said they were going hadn't even purchased their tickets yet. And I don't know if people realize this, but everything in general, prices are up across the board in any category um, out there, including airline tickets. Um, It's so expensive now. Everything is just jacked up in every which way that once people realize, oh my God, how much is the airfare going to be? And then everything else involved with it. I mean, I wish the people uh, that did attend this year um, the best. I hope it was very um, fruitful for them. The fact there's two ways that this could have happened, James. You could have had these 75 or so of exhibitors have more face time with the retailers and, and get to spend a lot of quality time, which is very difficult at the IPCPR in general, uh, or I mean the uh, PCA. Um, so here, right. this could be a very good thing for those 75 people that decided to take the, uh, the plunge this year. For me, it was a matter of one, um, I, did, I don't need much of an excuse to not go, but the other factor is right now, um, most factories are either in back order um, situations or have some type of issue. I just recently have an issue with, I'm not able to get my Nicaraguan tobacco. Um, it's kind of stuck at the border from Nicaragua over to Costa Rica, and I'm already two and a half weeks behind schedule, which will mean that things will be delayed across the board. As I mentioned before, I make uh, a lot of um, blends for other companies as well. Um, And for my own stuff right now, I'm in a good position, but I can see that I'm going to have a little bit of a issue in the next month. So is that a, is that a COVID uh, because of COVID or is it? Yes, it is because of COVID. Um, In Costa Rica, what happened about, well, here in, in most Latin countries, we're here in the United States, we seem, or at least I have, uh, most people think, hey, COVID's done, we're, we're, we're good, let's move on. And believe yeah. me, I feel the same way, and I'm just so happy that we've able to move on. However, the rest of the world is not in the same position that we are in. In Costa Rica, what happens is um, most Latins, they seem to get off two weeks a year, the same two weeks, one being Christmas a week uh, through January. So everybody seems to be off that week. The other week that everybody's off is the um, Easter week, which happened in May. So during that week, everybody was home uh, with their families and not working and partying for a week up until Easter. And COVID went through the roof and the hospitals in general uh, were jam-packed in these Latin countries. And I know specifically in Costa Rica, it spiked so much, they decided to shut down the country for two weeks. That was bad, but I survived that. And then since it's been shut down, they've reopened, but now they have where, if you recall, in the 70s, we had to do odd and even license plates to get gasoline during the, the gas crisis. Now you can't drive your car in Costa Rica if your plate is on an you know even or odd. So you basically can drive every other day, which means wow. that even in my factory, I have half the laborers working, and the ticket right. is very severe. It's like two hundred fifty dollars, which is a sizable amount of money for uh, somebody in Costa Rica that makes you know it's probably you know the average person well average roller makes about 50 to 60 dollars a day in, in my factory so um it's a lot of money uh for yeah. you know hell i got a ticket for 250 and i'll cry um so <laughs> you know that's a lot and people don't want to take the chance and um it's causing problems and now for whatever reason at the border they're not allowing a lot of these trucks 
there's a lot of factors, but uh, I keep checking in and hopefully it'll get through. But other factories have been, you know, even worse hit and have other factors. Um, you know, Nicaragua's had a lot of issues. Yeah. Uh, Honduras, I know, has had issues. So it's it's been tough out there. So there's a lot of backorder um, statuses for a lot of these companies. So having that in the back of my mind, uh, the added expense of going out there with potentially a lot less retailers that are going to come across. And like yeah. I said, I didn't need much of an excuse to not go. Um, well, so yeah. in a post-COVID world, is there a reason to have a trade show at all? I mean, so from a from a large manufacturer perspective and from a like for you, a small boutique manufacturer perspective, is there in a post-COVID world a reason for the PCA or, or even the TPE to have a trade show every year? I think it uh, it's a it was great. I went to the trade show for the last you know, 12 years in a row, first as a retailer and then as a manufacturer. Um, I think it's a great way to meet up with your friends, buddies, and people in the industry on the socializing aspect, aspect and of course, networking. And on the f- point of business-wise, uh, yeah, I think there is some benefit, but it's really one of those, you know, you have to weigh your own costs uh, involved. The PCA costs with the unions and things like that have skyrocketed. The, the, the cost to exhibit is so ridiculously high. Um, I think this is going to be a very pivotal year where it could either be really good for these retailers because it's a smaller amount, or it could be the nail in the coffin. Why is this show like the TP even possible when the PCA was really the only game in town? Because people are looking for alternative, less expensive just different versions. I think the concept of having a trade show is very, very good and it should still exist, but I think you just need to tweak it to make it a better business environment for cigar manufacturers and retailers to get together. Um, But the reality is if you don't go to the show as a retailer, most of the manufacturers will give you the show special anyway. Some won't, but most will. And then a lot of times some retailers, they budget maybe 50% or higher of their year's uh, buying time at the show because they get the show deals and what have you. So yeah, for some retailers, it's a very important part of, of their business model. Um, so yeah, it's there. Everybody's different in how they treat it. I, th- I think everybody would be able to adapt if it wasn't there or if it was another version of the current show, which would be my vote. Um, next year for sure, I'm going to do TPE and, you know, I'll do PCA if it's there this year. It was nice to have the break off. I'll be honest. You know, it's, (laughs) it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun at the same time, but, um, you know, I have to stick to my decision not to go, of course. And, and I was on the fence. It wasn't an easy decision, but, um, I didn't go for, for small manufacturers like you, I, I feel like it's, it's a big decision. It's something that you really have to grapple with as opposed to, you know, if you're a larger company, you're either just going to go or you're not going to go. Right. But for a smaller boutique company, you have challenge. Like, is it, it, it's, it's a really, like you said, a risk versus reward assessment. Am I going to, uh, you know, be able to re- recoup the amount of money it costs me to go to get a booth, to, to spend the man hours, to, to ship all the product, to ship this, to, to tear it down. Like it's really risk versus reward. Uh, is there like what other challenges do you see 
uh, from a boutique perspective, and I hope you don't mind me using the, sure. the word boutique. I know you're in 13 countries. You're not you're not a small operation. Well, boutique um, doesn't necessarily mean small. There's very large people that consider themselves to be boutique. It's whatever your definition of the word boutique means. If it means taking the best and making the best product, um, that could be anybody. You know, boutique. You know, the, the if you look in the dictionary, what the word boutique means, or what or what the word is used in this industry, uh, you know, it can mean anything. Yeah. And that right, and that varies from from person to person. So, what is your definition of the word boutique, Nick? Boutique for me is any any company that takes great care to make sure they're producing the best possible cigar they can with the best materials uh, and the passion. I guess the word passion, I think, is is the best. If you have passion in your in your factory in your cigars, I think then you can be considered a boutique. I think maybe the original classical term of boutique in the industry was basically if you were in less than a thousand cigar shops, you were considered a boutique sh uh, sh um, shop. But it basically, if you're specialized in what you do, that's what a boutique is. So you could be a very large uh, clothing line that's boutique and they could you know, sell millions and millions of dollars. But if you're very specialized in what you do and you take you know, no cutting, no corners and creating the best possible product that you can, that, that's boutique to me. From, from a, 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 just a general statement standpoint, would you agree with uh, a statement that goes something along the lines of uh, with greater quantity comes lesser quality? It doesn't have to be, but generally those statement, that statement is true. Um, if you take away the, the factors that made you there and you just started pumping out stuff and getting it out there, you're going to lose a lot of the quality. You have to have good quality control. Um, yeah. And then the process, it's more of the process. Uh, to me, it's a process that starts right at the table. In fact, the way that we do things, we have one supervisor that sits between a two to three pairs of rollers that we have that checks every cigar that comes off that table by weight uh, and, and then the gauge and also the, the, the quality of how it's made. And then it goes at the end through another quality control where it's checked for a draw and things like that. So we, we make sure that our cigars, like a lot of people are always amazed that, oh my God, your cigars have such great construction. To me, it's, I would be amazed if it, if there was a problem with the construction, because I've right. gotten so used to the way that, that we do things at the factory. Um, and a lot of factories, potentially can cut corners to just produce more and more cigars out there. So, you know, each roller is supposed to make X amount of cigars, but if they're cutting corners to do what they need to do, then, you know, so I don't think necessarily to answer your question. No, you can continue making more and more cigars as long as you don't um, cut back on your, on your processes, make sure that that's the same. You just, you just gauge it up to the level that you need to be. So for these smaller uh, manufacturers, what are some of the challenges uh, in the business? Uh, look, and even uh, with others in the business, right? So I've, I've talked to, to several people, and I, I think it was said on this show that uh, the industry as a whole is like a, a, a card game in the Old West, right? Everybody uh, above the table playing poker. They're having a good time. They're drinking. They're laughing. Ha, ha, ha. Helping each other out. Everyone's friends. Underneath the table, the guns are drawn. And like nobody's actually really friends. Is the is the industry like that? And is it is it harder for 
smaller manufacturers to 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 break through and you know how can how can the industry maybe help facilitate that a little bit well everybody's always quick to say oh this is such a friendly industry and i have to agree with that for the most part at least superficially everybody's friends everybody uh, is very nice to everybody else for the most part and i and i definitely agree with that statement the one thing that I will say on a personal level is I have realized very quickly early on. See, I'm a kind of guy that I don't care if it's in electronics and computers or what have you. If I know even an iota more information than you do, I'm one of the type of persons that likes to share that. And I do it with not expecting anything in return. If I can help you, I just do it. That's just my nature. And, and I've kind of lived my life like that. And that's just the way I am. And people that know me will say, yeah, that's what he does. And sometimes people go, why do you do that? And I go, I don't know, karma. I like to help people. That's why I became a cop. And, and uh, I still believe in helping people in this business. And, and again, if I, and I've, there were people that were much more ahead in the process in the cigar business than I was, but if I could offer them some advice or help, I had no problem in doing it. But I did realize very early on, for the most part, it's a one-way street. Everybody's mentality that I see is like, hey, yeah, it's a, it's a friendly game. We all wish everyone success, but figure it out on your own. And that's the general thing that I notice out there. And <laughs> You know what? You just got to take people for who they are and what they are, you know, and, um, you know, the bigger companies, I can't really say so, you know, as much because I don't really have as much, um, in, you know, interaction with, with those. I've been to the factories and such, but the actual people that are out there, my biggest problem and my and if I could find one area that has been the part that I'm trying to figure out. And in this last year, I've I actually have gotten quite a big boost because I changed and it shifted and, and I did things a little differently. And it has resulted in a, uh, not only a lot more sales, but I think more of an awareness in the last year. And I'll get into that, but there was, there was something I was going to say about the process. And I just forgot what, what, what <laughs> that happens um, to be all the time. What, what, I forget why I walked into a room. Oh my God. I was going to tell you, Oh, I know what it was. So here's the part, you know, I got, this fantastic factory. And I have what I believe to be these great blends that are unique uh, in the sense that it's not a me too. And that's good or bad. Um, you know, a lot of people are looking for Nicaraguan tobacco and Nicaraguan flavors seem to be the predominant choice of many out there in consumers. And so if somebody smokes one of my cigars, it'll have hints of what they're familiar in some of the Nicaraguan tobacco that we use. But the overall blend will not necessarily be one that you could say, oh, it's a Nicaraguan cigar. Um, so is that good or bad? It's good in the sense that you should try different things. And if you predominantly like Nicaraguan cigars, if that's your go-to, it's not bad every now and then to be able to change it up with something that's going to be quality, but different. And that's what I try to articulate again with, with the retailers saying, look, I'm a Costa Rican cigar, even though I currently use no Costa Rican tobaccos in my blends. It's something different. How many Costa Rican cigars do you have in your humidor? Most likely not too many. Um, so right. there's that factor. And then the fact that it's different, but again, quality. And, and when I go to shops and when I do these cut and lights or even events, I will tell people, look, I will want you to buy one of my cigars. And if by chance you don't like it, if it's not 
a quality cigar and you just had a bad experience, I'll buy you a comparable cigar in the humidor because that's how confident I am that that is going to be a good experience for you. And it's worked that way. But the problem has been because of all the different brands. I spoke to another manufacturer friend of mine just the other day, and he was laughing. He's saying, you know what? I thought I hated the FDA, but maybe this FDA wasn't such a bad thing because because (laughs) if you notice now there's like 300 new brands that came out overnight. I said, yeah, maybe two or 300. I go, (laughs) and he's like, like, you're right. And, and, you know, but I know it, it, to me, I'm not the more the merrier because it's a tough game and everybody wants to have their cigar. But at the end of the day, your passion and the quality of your cigar is what's going to get you through or not get you through to the next day. Um, But the biggest problem is the one element of this business that I'm still trying to navigate. And that is, if you're not able to hire your own sales task, your own sales force, you know, employees to go out there, like companies like uh, the the big four or companies like Alec Bradley and and, uh, Rocky Patel that have their in-house people. um, The other thing you can do is hire what they call in this industry a broker and a lot of other industries are sales reps, they're manufacturers reps, and they represent your cigar, your brand, as well as eight or nine others. So, and they work a specific territory and their job is to sell your cigar to these retailers. And hopefully because of their relationship and the, you know, the being the local guy, they're able to introduce you to these stores. So, The problem is there's only so many good ones out there. There's a lot of guys that would want to be in the cigar business and do this. Uh, And I've tried many different types of brokers and I have some very good ones now, uh, but I've gone through a lot that uh, have not worked out for me. And the problem is there's just not that many. And, And I've spoken to so many of my friends in this industry that, you know, they've had the same exact problems like, oh, that broker, he sucks. Or this guy's terrible. This guy... And it's like, then something's got to be wrong with the system. Um, I'm only one person. And, you know, if I could go into every single shop myself personally and introduce myself and my cigars, I would do it. I'm kind of working on that. I I do, well, pre-COVID anyway, I was on the road when I wasn't in Cuba or Costa Rica. You know, I was in retailers and I'm back in retailers uh, shops now. I'm working with the brokers that I have. And it's just getting, you know, the word out there. It's a big country and there's a lot of shops. Um, so you, 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 you do it one at a time. So that's the hardest that's not, part for me. That's not the, the first time, uh, in this conversation that you've, you've talked about doing things the way they've always been done uh, and kind of in this industry, there's a lot of tradition and a lot of things just happen because of tradition. Um, how much of that needs to change? Like, I don't want to mention specifics and I certainly don't want to mention, uh, specific companies, but there are a lot of things that happen in this industry that happen because it's quote unquote tradition. And this is the way we've always done it. Why would we change it? Even if it's for the better. And in a, in an industry that hasn't really changed a lot in a hundred years, um, it becomes quite stagnant. And for like, I'm still a newer cigar smoker. I've only been into the hobby now, the, the lifestyle for three or four years. How do like, how, how do you fight against that to change the things that you see in the industry, especially as a manufacturer that are like, well, okay, this might be tradition, but is this the best we can do? Yeah. I mean, lately I've really been doing a lot of retro inflection um, and trying to understand, 
you know, trying to do things different. There's a lot of people that do things differently. You know, Skip Martin from Romacraft, he doesn't use brokers and, and he's managed to get his cigar into, you know, a good chunk of the retailers out there. I'd say he's one of the top boutiques out there and he doesn't do it with brokers. The best example of that is Padron. Padron doesn't even have salespeople, you know, but yet, you know, that's the first cigar brand that retailers seem to go to first. I mean, if you want to um, have a cigar shop, you got to carry Padron and they can be very choosy about who they let in Their Their margins are, are less and they're doing quite well and they make a quality product. That's the ultimate model that I think, you know, everybody would love to have, you know, you have no added costs of sale, selling your product, you know? Um, right. Yeah, that's different. Uh, and then you got, you know, the, the big, uh, the big manufacturers that have in-house people that, um, you know, they give out so many samples and so many um, promotional things. The, the the biggest factor for me is when people are expecting, oh, listen, you know, buy 10, get five free boxes. And there are manufacturers that are willing to do that with the margins I have. I, I can't do that. You know, there's no way. I mean, yeah, if I raise my prices to what they should be, I could give some more promotional, but I make it very clear. Look, this is the cost of the product. This is what I have. If you like it, you know, I'll be happy to, to partner up with you. And, and, I, and I treat every retailer as an important partner. And, and that's another thing that initially maybe I didn't do as much because I was in a lot more retailers that you end up going by the wayside very quickly if you don't have that relationship with the retailer. And I was expecting initially the local broker to have that relationship and I would lose track or never have contact with the retailer. Now, every retailer that I put on and everybody I try to not only get to know them individually and personally, but you know, it's, it's one big, nice, happy family. And it has to be a win-win situation. Like I said, coming from a retail background, the last thing I want is, and I'll, and I'll be honest, I'll go into a certain retailer, uh, you know, or or a shop and I'll go, you know, my product's not going to work here. And they're like, what, what do you mean? I just know it's not going to work. And they're like, well, I don't understand why I want to carry your product. And here's in this one case that I was thinking of my product, because it doesn't have the brand awareness that's normally out there with some of these other brands, it's going to require at least once for that tobacconist or retailer to introduce it to a potential customer. And ideally that would be, if you know your customer as, as a, as a good tobacconist and say, Hey, you know, I know Joe uh, Smith here. He likes to have cigars that have this type of profile with this type of flavor and strength. Hey, I know Mr. Customer, you smoke this brand all the time, but if you tried this once, give it a try, see what you, what you think. And that's all it takes because I know the experience, like I said, is going to be good. And if they like it, they'll go back to it. And that's how I've been getting people to try my brand and to take it on and to continue to sell it. Um, it's different in the LH, but I did want to mention before, you know, the show was over. I don't know how much time we have left, but what I did in the last year with the L, you know, so I have the LH brand and then the LH core and the idea that it's the bridge cigar. And again, it's something different. My next phase of my in my part in this industry in the U.S. is to make blends now that I think are more American, made made for the American customer. And I say that with the American palate in mind, because it's definitely a different palate. So having said that, I came up with a line that 
that I launched during the, um, do you like that segue, James? I mean, I, I, you didn't, I do. I, that was a, <laughs> that was very professional. That was very professional. I, you know, again, I don't want to steer the, the steer your show to where, but I do want to talk about this. Um, yes, you, no, go ahead. You have the LH line. And then last year I thought, you know, during COVID eh, LH is going to be stagnant this year, because if I can't introduce and, and get new uh, retailers, then it's, it's going to be a pretty flat year for sales. Well, um, that wasn't the case. I um, pretty much doubled my business last year, and I know a lot of other re- um, manufacturers have. In my case, I did, again, try to do, since I couldn't go about and I didn't spend the time in Cuba and in Costa Rica, and I found a lot of time in my office, I was like, well, let's come up with different ways to increase business. Initially, I said, well, if I can't expand horizontally, meaning adding retailers, then I can grow vertically and hopefully have the retailers I have bring in more products. And by doing so, I created more cigars and more blends. I never did that many over the last four or five years because I just felt that I didn't have the solid base first. You know, I, you know, I don't want to come out with a new blend every, every month or every six months or, you know, some brands come out with every other day, Um, (laughs) right? uh, Limited this and special edition that I didn't want to be that guy. Um, because I felt that I needed people to understand and to really get to know my core brand, uh, blends before I started expanding. But because of the necessity of the pandemic, I decided to make a, another cigar as a augment the LH line. And it was kind of easy for me in what I in what I wanted to do. I knew the blend that I was working with, the one that I that I knew the American um, consumer would enjoy. I had the perfect wrapper. Um, and it's my my favorite wrapper to date, and it's the same wrapper that I used in a cigar I made for Jim Robinson of Leaf by Oscar fame. Um, he sells a cigar that I produce called the Nick and Jim, um, right. and a lot of people have no idea that I'm the Nick of Nick and Jim, and that's kind of funny. And I'll tell you a, a very a very <laughs> th- this story kind of sums it up. I've gone into retailers of mine, LH retailers. And I'll see somebody smoking a Nick and Jim and I'll go, hey, what do you think of that cigar? And they're like, hey, Nick, have you tried this? This is a really good cigar. And I'm like, uh, yeah, uh, uh, I'm the Nick yeah. of the Nick and Jim. And they're like, oh, no, oh, no way. I didn't know. It's like, so that goes to show <laughs> that it's very frustrating because honestly, the only reason Jim even sells that cigar was he, he's remember I mentioned how certain people don't want to help in this industry. Well, right. Robinson is the exact opposite of that person. Jim Robinson is probably the nicest guy in the industry. Um, he really is a genuinely good soul. And we met many years ago in Cuba and he was smoking my cigars and he said, Hey man, this is a great cigar. How do I get these? And I'm like, Jim, just ask. Cause he has a retail store. So he started selling them in his retail store and, and it did very well for him. And, and he said, Nick, how do we get more people to get to know your cigars? And I said, Jim, I'm all ears. If you can think of something, you know, I'm, I'm there. And he said, well, you know, I don't want to force my brokers to sell your brand of cigars since they don't work for me. However, if you make a cigar for me, I will add it to my catalog of cigars and then they'll sell that. And then people will get to know you. You know, so originally the cigar was supposed to be called the Levita Isla, the Levita from Levita Havana, Isla from the Island Gym name. And um, we had a nice box designed and a, and a, and a, and a, a band and the whole bit. And then uh, right before we were to release, 
we were hit with a cease and desist that we responded to. And we basically told them that, you know, go scratch, um, legally, <laughs> legally go scratch. Right. At, yeah. at the, uh, at that point, Jim did not want to wait any longer. And he said, you know what, Nick, I don't care what we call this damn cigar. Let's just call it the Nick and Jim and just get it out there. So I said, you know what? I'm all for it. Um, why don't we call it the Nick and Jim PBE? I said, the PBE standing for pre-band edition. And we were doing it kind of tongue in cheek where I thought we would only produce 20,000 sticks with this Nick and Jim band. And the band was simply a white paper band with I went on the internet and found the the most crooked and old looking font that looked like a typewriter <laughs> and right. made it say Nick and Jim. So the idea was, you know, when you're when you're, you know, the whole tongue in cheek thing is that it's not ready for prime time, that it was a cigar that was, you know, you basically when you're still testing the blends. When right. you test blends, they usually put a white paper band on it and they usually write on it Liga One, Liga Two, or whatever. And so this was going to be the PB or the pre-band edition. And, and the box even had on the side, still to this day, it says, you know, LH logo goes here and Island Gym logo goes here. And it's made to look like kind of not ready for prime time kind of thing. Well, it was released. It did really well. And, um, you know, when I was like, okay, Jim, we, we, we were on to uh, the next batch. I said, should we change the name now? And Jim very uh, intelligently and business-like said, Nick, <laughs> It's not broken. Don't fix it. Let it ride. <laughs> so we continue to call it the Nick and Jim, and it will forever be called the Nick and Jim. So I don't think the La Vida Isla will ever come to fruition, uh, at least in that incarnation. But so the Nick and Jim is out there. But that was the first cigar that I used, this special wrapper, which is a Vuelta Abajo seed from Cuba that we planted in our farm in Ecuador. And it produces such a very chocolatey and sweet wrapper um, on a, you know, it's a fairly dark wrapper, which aesthetically is very beautiful. And that wrapper, along with the blend that I created for Jim, and again, it was for Jim. I was going back to basics and I said, you know, Jim, I don't know if this cigar will sell at all, but I guarantee you this, you are going to love this cigar. You will smoke this cigar. And the only thing that I can say is that today, if you ever see Jim out and about, and he's always out and about, the only cigar that you will ever see him smoke, and you know, after I say this, he'll probably change his mind, but literally, every <laughs> picture, everywhere you see him, he tends to favor the Nick and Jim cigar. He likes that cigar. And I always tell him, Jim, you smoke all the supply. I don't know if you're selling much of it. You keep smoking it all. And he does smoke quite a bit of it. And, and it makes me happy that he does enjoy it because that means I did my job right i made a cigar that he likes and hopefully other consumers as well but using that same wrapper i wanted to create a line around that wrapper and initially i thought we would do a whole nick and jim line of cigars but i believe jim is focused on his leaf by oscar and his island jim and he doesn't need another line you know the, the he created or the nick and jim was was created really to help me not for him he could sell he could have made another leaf by oscar cigar so i get it um, and so I was sitting back during the pandemic and I couldn't get labels made for like four months. If I was lucky, I decided right. to make, use the same idea of that white paper band. And instead of putting Nick and Jim on it, using the exact same font, I just put Nick on it. So I came out with a cigar initially, one original cigar. I didn't realize I was going to do more than one. I just wanted to do something <laughs> that was fun. And I hadn't produced a Figurado 
in the LH line to that point. And, and my theory was originally that, you know, figurados are great, but, you know, the added cost of a figurado, when people are cutting off the tip, I mean, does it really make any difference? And the reality is, oh boy, it does. I mean, I always knew the geometry effects of it. I mean, a figurado, because of its unique shape in whatever it is, is going to produce and deliver a different smoking experience because of that. So I came out with a cigar that originally I was just going to call the Nick, but then at the factory, everybody was calling this cigar Panzone. And I'm like, um, why are they calling it a Panzone? I mean, I speak a passable Spanish now, but I didn't understand. I didn't know what the word Panzone meant. And uh, what it does mean is pot-bellied or, you know, fat guy or something. And I'm like, wait a minute, are they making fun of me with this cigar? What are they trying to say? <laughs> You know, because it's a Nick and they're, and I didn't know. And they're like, no, no, Nick, no, no, no. It's because the center is so fat and it, it tapers on each end. So that's why they call it the Ponzone. And I'm like, oh, okay. All right. I get it. So I just love the word Ponzone. I loved the fact of why they named it that. So that cigar became the Ponzone. Some people still call it the Nick, but it's really the Ponzone. And it's a Figurado six by 64 but it doesn't feel as big as it sounds because it's so tapered and it's a unique uh, shape. And that took off last year and it did so well. I came out with a few other Vitolas in the line. Um, yeah, I I've smoked the, I've smoked the Toro of that. And hopefully by the time that this episode airs, uh, that review will be out. Great. Uh, I'm hoping to, to, to put those uh, both together this episode and, and that review, but I, I have smoked the Toro. I do have the, uh, the Panzone. Uh, <laughs> I have two of those that I need to smoke um, and, and hopefully I'll get those out this year. But the Nick, the Toro, like I, I like I like that one a lot. Yeah. I, I like that size. And again, I wasn't going to do a Toro in the Nick line. Um, I came out with a cigar called the, the Nick Jr. that was named actually by my Australian distributor. He basically said, hey, have you thought about making like a mini Ponzone? I go, well, what do you mean? Like a smaller version of the Ponzone? Yeah, yeah, different shape. And I said, well, you know, I, I could do that. I had a mold that we call the Botella, which means bottle. And it kind of does look like a mini Ponzone, but he named it the Nick Jr. So we have the Nick Jr. And then I have the Nick Lonsdale, which is a six inch and uh, the gauge is 46 where your average Lonsdale is 44. The problem with when I was making this Lonsdale, when I was trying to use the same Lijero, the Lijero is the leaves that are used in the center for strength. They were so coarse and thick, I wasn't getting a proper burn on the smaller gauge cigar. So I had to change the actual blend slightly um, to make it burn better. And I actually increased the, the gauge just a bit to uh, for the same reason. So I have a 46 by by six Lonsdale. That's also very tasty. And then, like I said, I love, I love, um, you know, Toros, but I had retailers that said to me, Hey, Nick, have you ever thought about making this Ponzone in a Toro size? And I said, well, yeah, I mean, something similar is the Nick and Jim, and you carry that already. And they're like, yeah, no, no, we need it like the Nick. We, You need a Nick Toro. <laughs> and I said, okay, you know, it's going to be similar because it does use the same wrapper and just different proportions of, of the tobacco for the for the taste, but it's very similar, but okay. So I literally have retailers that are have a Nick Toro side-by-side -side with a Nick and Jim, and they both sell. So go figure. Um, right. But look, what I give with the people what they want. 
and to that effect, that is going to be my whole focus. I, I realized, and I smoke a lot of cigars. People say, hey, what do you smoke, Nick? I said, well, I do prefer my own cigars. I'm not going to lie. Um, but I smoke everything out there. And, and you know what? I'm going to give a shout out to a good friend of mine. His name is Dominic. And Dominic is a unique character in, in the sense that this gentleman has been buying cigars since the early 90s. And he buys a lot of cigars. And he gets such enjoyment of giving cigars away. We have a group of friends that we meet several times a week just to smoke cigars. And Dominic is always handing out cigars. And I'm like, Dominic, please, I don't need cigars. And he enjoys handing out cigars because he literally has accumulated thousands and thousands of cigars. And I'm, I kid you not, he hands out every time he's around, he's like Santa Claus. And anybody that sits with <laughs> us, he's handing out cigars. Well, with Dominic... For the last probably four years, he's been doing this thing. He's always testing my, my palate, and we have this game we play, Cuban, non-Cuban. He also you know, has bought a lot of Cuban cigars over the years, and he's always trying to trump me and, and uh, trick me with a, a 25-year-old Cuban that obviously is going to taste different than a new Cuban. And for the most part, right. I'm, I'm pretty spot on. I would say he's gotten me on a couple that I, to this day, still think they're not Cuban, but I'm pretty good at picking out Cuban tobacco. But anyway, he does that, and he also he's made it his mission to give me just every cigar that's out there, and, and I thank him a lot for him. I, I don't think I'm enough, I think, for it but he's given me cigars that I just wouldn't even try to get my hands on. And he, he gets his hands on everything and anything. He's one of those crazy consumers. I say crazy, but again, it's his hobby and he just gets everything that's out there and he'll buy everything and try everything. And uh, he's been uh, very generous to allow me to try it. So from all the cigars that I've smoked over the last few years, I'm always amazed of what makes, you know, the, the cigar aficionado top 10 list. And, of all, uh, yeah, well. <laughs> and, and, and all these cigars that people seem to give such high accolades to. And I go, you know what? I'm going to start giving the people what they want. So my next phase of this business in the U.S. market, as I, as I gain uh, retailers, as I have, and I'm finally I've gotten some very good um, brokers on board too, as more and more retailers become LH retailers, I'm going to listen to the retailers as I always have. And if I'll produce different things that I think people will generally tend to like. So um, I think I did my job with the LH. And I'm very uh, comfortable and happy with, with the blends that I have. They do well overseas and they do well here for people that are open. Like I, it's the perfect cigar. If somebody says, hey, I like Cuban cigars or Cuban-esque, boom, give them an LH. That, that'll fit their, and I have it in just cover everybody from the mild to the full. Uh, nothing super full. Uh, but like even my full bodied is probably a medium plus plus at best. Uh, could I make it stronger? Sure. I just think there's no need to. Um, but there are people here that just like super strong cigars. And then you have the argument of is it is it nicker is it nicotine strength or is it flavor strength? Uh, and anyway, there's some that are just right. nicotine bombs, and I just don't believe in nicotine bombs. I don't understand it. If you want to get lightheaded or, or that buzz feeling why do you need to smoke a cigar there's other things that you can get that effect from um, right yeah a cigar is a different animal than all of those other things you can get that effect from i don't when i smoke for me personally i smoke for for enjoyment to relax to uh, you know uh, have some either time to my to myself or time with friends i i don't smoke for the buzz i smoke for the enjoyment yeah absolutely and, and that's how i got into this 
industry and into this uh, hobby because when I first had my first cigar, I've always been a guy that runs around, wasn't one to sit back and not a guy that easily relaxed. And a cigar helped me do that. It, it, I knew that, hey, for the next hour and a half, two hours, I was going to sit back and do nothing else and except just enjoy that cigar. And that's how I started. And of course, now I smoke when I drive and I smoke here. So it doesn't <laughs> have the same effect for me, um, but I still enjoy my cigar you know, as much as I ever did. And I think that's the magic of what a cigar is all about, the magic of the leaf. Uh, there is something very magical. That is my biggest message to get across to people. When people go, I understand why you smoke cigars. It's so disgusting. It smells... And I go, you just don't get it then. On top of, you know, the obvious things that people will say like, oh, it's about the flavor and the taste. And all those things are 100% true. But it's something else. It's the magic of that leaf when it's ignited and burned. It goes back to the days of the peace pipe. And, and it just somehow brings people from all different cultures and all different walks of life. And when you're in that room, you could be next to a CEO or next to a guy that's, you know, the, the um, whatever, the guy that works the fields in the tobacco, uh, you know, farm. And both of those people can enjoy that cigar from different walks of life, different socioeconomic backgrounds, but yet it can be very good friends. Uh, how I became friends with, you know, a royal um, prince and we had nothing in common and, and yet we became very good friends because it was the magic of a cigar and and that's the biggest message to get across to why you should smoke cigar the cigars is because there's something quite magical why is it used as a celebratory thing where people you know when they graduate school or they get a new job or they have a baby it's all about you know, uh, you know, celebrating with a cigar, those moments in life, those memories you make, cigars are all about that. And, and that's what my, that I preach. No, absolutely. I want, I 100% agree with everything you just said. I've said before, it's a great, it is a great equalizer. It is the, from Kings to street sweepers in the same room, enjoying and celebrating their, their passion, their love for, for the leaf. So I, I 100% agree. Uh, before we get out of here, Nick, uh, I, I got a couple questions for you. Uh, one we'll have some fun with, uh, but but the serious one is, where do you see LH Cigars in the next, let's just say, five years? And where do you see the industry in the next five years? Well, LH Cigars, uh, I believe in the next five years, will have a huge growth. Again, I'm not one to put a date or time to it. I never have been. Um I'm just taking, I'm walking down that path and at a comfortable pace and enjoying every step that I take, but inevitably more and more retailers and consumers are finding out about it. And the word is getting out there, which means there's going to be growth. And I'm happy to finally see that happen. And it gives me extra um, warm fuzzies about it because I did it my way. I didn't force it. I'm not out there forcing the cigar on anybody. I'm not marketing. I don't send it out to uh, reviewers. I really don't. You know, people have asked me, I don't do it, but it's still getting out there. And I see in five years, um, I will be out there a little bit more than I'm out there now. And uh, hopefully I'll still be enjoying what I'm doing. And uh, I've always said, as long as I can make a living at this, I can see myself, I, I never see myself retiring. So 
I could see myself easily being into my 80s doing exactly what I'm doing now, which is blending cigars and talking to consumers. I those are the two factors that I enjoy is being at the shops and meeting people. There's something that I enjoy a lot is with people that are enjoying my blends. When they tell me how much they get out of it, to me, that's the big, you know, it might sound corny, but that's the biggest thrill and worth more than any amount of money when people are enjoying something that you make. And uh, that's what keeps me going. So that was question. That was part of one. Two. That was part of one. Where is the industry going? The industry yeah. in the next five years, I believe, is going to have. Um, I mean, people have already said we're already in the renaissance of cigars. There's been a huge growth. I think it's surpassed even what you know the cigar the cigar boom of the '90s. The the cigar boom of the '90s. Uh, the negative thing was that because there was no tobacco or quality tobacco, there anything that could be rolled into a cigar was being sold. And a lot of it was really bad. And as you saw, when the shakedown happened and when the, you know, the demand went away, thankfully, a lot of these other things went away as well. And the people that survived from that era were worthy cigar makers that needed to survive. And now you have people from all walks of life that are getting into the cigar business. I think the, the factor of you had to be of some type of, uh, you know, Cuban descent to, to be taken seriously to make a cigar uh, isn't necessarily the only background you need. I think you can come from any walk of life. I think you just need to have a passion for cigars and have a vision of what your blend of what your brand represents. Um, and I think there's going to be a huge uh, increase in the number in the next five years. I think we will will be way more cigars being made than there are today. Just in the last year with the pandemic and everything else, I don't know the exact numbers, but they're way up. So I just see yeah. the trend continuing that way. Yeah. Which was weird for me to, to in my, you know, to wrap my head around. So we have a, a global pandemic, uh, you know, around, you know, concerning a, a, a disease that affects the lungs and breathing and all of that. And then cigar smokers are like, yeah, well I'm at home. And I'm bored, so I'm just gonna smoke a shit ton. And it, 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 then everyone's like, "Oh, that's a good idea. I think I'll do that too." And it just kind of took off. Yeah, I wish I could have uh, been one of those people. However, I currently, and I say temporarily, live in New Jersey, and it was for me a very difficult time <laughs> during the pandemic because uh, my wife wouldn't let me smoke. Not only not in the house, but I couldn't even smoke in the garage. So oh, wow. um, I did have a convertible, which was great because I would put the top down and, uh, you know, in 30, 40 degree weather, just crank the uh, the heater and just smoke the in heat, my car. Yeah. But my lease was up and I had to give the car up and uh, then I had no place to go. So that sucked. But uh, that, that would suck. Oh. I really missed Florida. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Well, I live, I live in the Midwest, right? So, uh, winters here are terrible. There's not a lounge within an hour and a half of me. I have to drive an hour and a half to get the, to wow, the nearest lounge. That's wow. Yeah. Holy Christ. So, uh, like my garage, it's not insulated. Like it's an old, like, so I'm in the garage, you know, every day, once or twice bundled up. Uh, yeah. It's terrible in the winter. I hate it. I absolutely hate it. All right. So let's have fun with this very last question. In your humidor, your personal humidor, Nick, how, like how many cigars do you have? Like, is it just a few? Do you have a lot? Well, um, well, I have 
my personal stock you mean like i mean i have the, yeah. the lh stock like, i can take what i want and what i smoke well no no hey, no like what do you humidor? what do you have yeah yeah your personal humidor um yeah i i have uh, i would have to say the majority of it is um cuban cigars you know how, but how many do you own like how many cigars in your collection well i have one of those five foot tall um refrigerator style humidors mm-hmm. for lack of a better word um, I, I don't know. I, I'd say maybe a thousand at, at best because I've collected over the years, uh, stuff from Cuba, from the different trade shows that I won't smoke. And then there's stuff that I do smoke. And then I, uh, have cigars from a lot of, uh, friends that are, you know, manufacturers that I like. Um, but yeah, I'm not like collector collector. I wouldn't say in that term, you know, like there's some people that really, love their i think i was more of a collector before i was a manufacturer you know now it's just i keep enough that i want to smoke and um yeah i don't know not really too many do you think a, uh, like you bring up a good point and i want to get your your take on it do you think a cigar is made to be collected or should they all just be smoked no matter what it, like you know rarity be damned i'm going to smoke this Again, it depends on the individual. I've had cigars that I shouldn't have smoked and I knew the value of it when I smoked it. And I knew that in 10 years, the value would be incredibly higher, but I didn't care. I smoked them all. I believe they're there to be smoked, but more importantly, they're to be shared, you know, to be able to share a cigar with somebody else in a moment, in a memory, um, that is more important than collecting of the cigars, collecting of the memories, you know, the moments. So, yeah, I think some people are all about collecting, but um, it's nice to have your favorite cigars and the stuff that you like to collect, but I'm all about smoking them. Yeah. No, me too. Me too. Nick, Cirrus, LH Cigars. Uh, uh, the website that you can go to to check it out is lhcigars.com. He really does. These, these cigars are fantastic. I'm not just saying that because he's here. You can look at the review that's up. Uh, of the Claro and hopefully the uh, the the Nick review the Nick Toro will be up. They they all scored above nines. They're very very good cigars. I don't know why uh, they're not in every humidor in well, America. James, Nick Sears, help me get them into every humidor. I, I, I'm tr- I doing my best. When you, when you wrote that review, I immediately scanned through it and then I went through it and I looked in, in big block letters. It said this cigar should be in every humidor. I said, well, I think this will be a good review. <laughs> you know, when I saw that line, because of course I wholeheartedly agree with you. I do believe that LA should be in every humidor and hopefully I'll get there. Hopefully you will. Uh, and when you do, don't forget the little guys uh, like me. I that, that uh, abs- I love your cigars. They're absolutely oh, fantastic. You. It means a lot to me that you, that you do. Thank you so much for coming on, Nick. I really do appreciate it. You have a ton of, uh, like a, you have a, a wealth of information about Cuba and Cuban cigars. I'd love to bring you back on at some point uh, and pick your brain about Anytime. that. But this was, Anytime. this was, this was all about you, your journey and LH cigars and, and the journey that you're taking with them. Cause like you said, it's you're, you're enjoying the journey and you'll get to the destination when you get to the destination. And that's awesome. That's I think plan. that there, there needs to be more of that in the world. Nick Sears, LH cigars. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, everyone. Uh, Thanks for listening. Join me next time when I'm not quite sure what I'm going to be talking about, but I promise it'll be Simply Stogies. Stay smoky, friends. Thank you for listening to Simply Stogies. Please rate and review Simply Stogies on iTunes. 
You can follow James on his cigar journey on Instagram at Simply Stogies Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at the Twitter handle at Simply Stogies. <laughs>